Hello and welcome to episode Michel Picard of the Cost for Pointcast. I'm your host, Colin Cudmore, and today we're keeping things rolling with the Draft Debater series. If this is your first time tuning into the series, each episode I'm joined by two scouts slash draft analysts who will debate why they're high or low on their most differently ranked prospect. So we've done two episodes already. Last week I was joined by Ryan Beach and Will Scouch, and today I'm joined by two more fantastic prospect writers. So on my left, you may remember him from all the way back from our fifth episode. You can find his NHL draft writing on The Athletic. Welcome to the show, Scott Wheeler. Scott, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Doing awesome, thanks. So really glad you could join today. And on my right, you can find his writing on EP Rinkside and also The Athletic. Welcome to the show, J.D. Burke. How's it going? Going well. Uh, very sleep-deprived, very tired here, putting the final touches on my top 93, but but eager to debate some of the points therein and and hopefully make it right through to the end of this podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, uh, both of you, for coming on today. And before we jump in, I just want to give a quick shout-out to the Toronto Raptors. Amazing victory yesterday. We all might still be recovering a bit from last night's win, but uh, what an incredible story for Canadian sports. But today we're going to talk about prospects. The NHL draft is coming up very quickly, and the first one I want to touch on is Cam York. So he played for a stacked U.S. National U18 team this year, and he put up the highest point total ever for a defenseman. And could potentially be the second defenseman off the board at this year's draft after Bowen Byram. So I have my consolidated rankings in front of me right now, where uh, he comes out as the 16th ranked prospect with uh, kind of an expected range of picks 13 through 21. So uh, Scott, you have him ranked pretty high at 9th on your list, and JD, mm-hmm. you have him significantly lower at uh, 20th. So uh, starting with Scott, uh, so what is it that makes York such an intriguing prospect? Ooh, I, I think there's a lot of things that make him really intriguing for me. The the first thing that leaps out to people normally as a negative for him is his skating. He doesn't have that sort of pull-away separation gear that a lot of the top-end defensemen in today's game have, like a Charlie McAvoy or soon-to-be a Quinn Hughes. Um, and, and even a lot of the kids who've come, the sort of top kids, if you will, quote-unquote, who come through the National Development Program, I think of a Bode Wild. Uh, have that ability to sort of create exits with their feet and, and use their feet to gain separation and turn out of corners and turn out of loose pucks and and really use their feet to make plays. And York isn't necessarily that kind of a guy, so it results in a lot more exits with uh, sort of long stretch passes or, or even a short dish to his partner or someone else in transition on a curl. So uh, the first thing you notice with him is that he's not a flashy, dominant sort of I need to have the puck all the time kind of player. Uh, And we do like to see, or at least I do like to tend to see that from my defensemen in terms of if you're going to be a top 10 pick and someone like Bowen Byram is certainly that. Um, So, so York lacks that a little bit and and it's hard for a lot of people to, to then justify putting him in their top 10 as a result. But I think ultimately everything else about York's game has impressed me so much. I think he often gets unfairly knocked for playing on that top power play unit and the points that he would have picked up by proxy of how good that team was. But uh, he put together the best sort of U18 season by a defenseman we've ever seen out of the national development program in terms of raw production. Um, so there's there's just a lot to like. I love the way that he plays in transition primarily as a passer. He's gained a lot of confidence in the last couple of years in terms of jumping up into the rush as a shooter to make himself active as a shot threat. Uh, and he's just, for a kid who's 5'11", he's a really mature defender. So uh, a lot of times with kids that are a little bit lighter and he is on the lighter side, uh, they struggle, especially playing those college teams with the National Development Program, to really... Uh, grab hold of the defensive side of the game. And I I love the way that he defends the rush and that he gets involved with his stick on the cycle to disrupt plays. So 
Uh, I think uh, outside of not maybe not having the skating that you would hope for out of a top prospect, he's got basically everything else that I look for. Awesome. Yeah, so to, over to JD. So what is it about York that makes him uh, lower in your rankings? Do you think it's uh, a lot of that has to do with the skating or are there other factors that you disagree with? Well, I'm, I'm actually not uh, not too down on York skating, actually. I mean, he, he might not have the highest top-end speed or separation speed, but uh, he certainly gets around the ice well enough. And if you're going to f- defend well against the rush in, in, in the way that Cam York does, you're going to need uh, strong skating to do that. Where I am a bit less bullish on Cam York is that I don't necessarily think that his point totals reflect his offensive abilities uh, to the extent that they might for other defensemen just because of the situation that he was in. Mm-hmm. I don't see somebody who is going to drive offense by himself. I see somebody who is a puck-moving, two-way defenseman, not necessarily a dynamic offensive force, but somebody who sees the ice wall enough to kind of take those opportunities. So when he smells blood in the water, he jumps into the offensive zone, becomes a, a part of the U.S. NTDP's cycle game, and he can be really effective in that role. But I don't see somebody with an excellent shot. I don't see somebody who's going to quarterback uh, quarterback a first unit power play at the NHL level. I see somebody who's got more of a second pair upside. And when I think about that, I don't know if I can necessarily justify putting him in that top 10 spot because some of the players in there, you're talking about top of the lineup talent. And I just don't know if I've seen enough from York to indicate that he is that type of player. I mean, you don't want to punish him for, for playing well in his role. But, I mean, you can't separate the context that he was on the best United States national team in the program's history playing first unit power play time. I mean, that's going to help a lot with your point totals. So I think if you were able to adjust those for context, you'd see somebody who I think is is, is probably better suited to the mid-teens than, than uh, the top 10, at least in my estimation. That's the player that I see based on my viewings. Mm-hmm, for sure, and it's, it's definitely undeniable that he had at least some help from his surroundings, although it's probably just a matter of figuring out whether he was more of like a play driver or a play follower or somewhere in between. So like even on the blue line at, the, at that program, there's a few other draft-eligible guys, such as uh, I think Dominic Fensore and Marshall Warren, who definitely could have factored in that as well. So uh, back over to Scott, how do, you, how do you think York fits into all of that? No, I think a lot of that is is quite honestly, I think that's bang on. I think there there are some serious challenges in evaluating the defensemen and, and the forwards, quite frankly, on that team. And I think when we look back in, in three or four years, we're going to look back on the seven or eight top guys and we're going to say, oh, how did player X get drafted as highly as he did? And there's probably going to be one player from that top group with the Matthew Boldies and the Trevor Zegerses who you look back on and say that kid went too high. And, and that was probably a byproduct of the talent that he was playing with and the talent that he was surrounded of. And then on the flip side, you're probably going to look back in a few years and, and see someone who played lower in that lineup, whether it's a Patrick Moynihan or a Judd Colefield or uh, a John Beecher who probably goes a little bit lower than they should have because they didn't get the chance to truly blossom and grab hold of it and play on the top power play. Um, I still do think that York has the tools to be a, a PP one guy at the NHL level. I think he manages that power. He managed that power play so well this season. And obviously a lot of it ran through Zegris and Hughes as well, but I really liked what I saw out of, out of York and in particular sort of late in the season in the way that he quarterbacked that power play and how dynamic he developed into as a sort of real threat out there and someone who teams had to pay a lot of respect to. So uh, I would agree with JD that, that there are certainly concerns about his sort of pure talent upside uh, and maybe that'll take him a couple of years in, in college to kind of figure out to see whether he's truly got sort of top pairing upside or whether he's going to settle in as a second pairing guy. But 
I think in the back half of that top 10, kind of in that 9 to 12 range where I had him all year, that the, the I have similar concerns about some of the other players who I have in that range, like an Alex Newhook and a couple of others who um, certainly have the talent to be sort of upper echelon players, but also could you could see settling into a second pairing or a second line role. And I think there is a little bit of a drop-off around sort of 9, 10, 11, 12. So York kind of fits into that group for me. Anything else you want to add to that, J.D.? No, I think we've just about covered everything uh, uh, present in Cam York's game. Uh, one thing that does give me give me pause with Cam York, though, and we talked about how well he defends, and he generally does, but there are moments I find when when the opposition establishes offensive zone time and gets the cycle going. Sometimes the play can get a bit fast for Cam York, and you can find him out of position. Uh, you mm-hmm. can find him reaching a bit behind the pace of play. So that's one thing, too, that kind of kept my my praise for him muted was that I found that in moments his competitiveness would wane and he'd just find himself one or two steps behind the full pace of play in the defensive zone and and those extra moments those those seconds they matter a lot more once the talent compresses and I think that it might become something of a uh, a kink that he's going to have to work out and of course like I don't want to sound too critical because I mean uh, we talked about where we ranked those players previously, and I'm just looking at my board right now. I think I moved him down to 16, so I think very highly of this player. But once you start getting that high up in the draft, you really have to start parsing these little these little differences a little bit more carefully, and and that's sort of where I fall on him as a player. Awesome. So I think we should move on to our second prospect, which is uh, another defenseman, Victor Soderstrom. So immediately I look at Soderstrom as someone the Sens might target just because um, he's a right shot player, uh, which they could really use in their system right now. But he also has experience playing against older competition, spending almost the entire season with Brynäs IF in the SHL. So uh, based on the average rankings, he's the 14th ranked prospect in my uh, consolidated rankings and is expected to go somewhere between uh, 11th and 21st around that range. So uh, JD, you have him ranked at uh, the average 14th, although Scott, you have him ranked uh, far below the consensus at 28th. So uh, starting with JD this time, I think a lot of the debate around Soderstrom uh, revolves around his kind of offensive upside. Uh, do you think he has enough to warrant uh, a pick, uh, like a pick in the top half of the first round? That is the question with uh, with with Victor Soderstrom is whether he has the offensive upside to warrant a selection that high. And I, I, I got to say, I'm I'm not certain that the offensive upside is there. I think we've seen flashes of it. Some of the stuff that Victor Soderstrom did at the Helenka Gretzky going into this year was was. Uh, was quite good, and and then you start to wonder if playing against men in the SHL, Soderstrom was kind of uh, keeping it close to his chest, not exposing himself to unnecessary risks to maintain a spot in that lineup, to maintain his top four role, because, I mean, that would be a reasonable thing to assume on the part of Victor Soderstrom. Here's what I like about him. Here's what I'm certain about. He is a fantastic defensive player. His defensive zone reads are, are, are top-notch. His puck retrievals are excellent. He's always checking his shoulder to read oncoming pressure and look for an outlet valve. And he's going to hit that player with a quick, sharp pass and lead a zone exit immediately once the puck is on his stick. I really think that he stood up exceedingly well to the, the, the high level of competition in the SHL last year. And, and, and he stood up physically as well, which shows a physical maturity that you don't see from a lot of prospects in this age group. I think that he's got a very high floor as a result of that. So even if I don't see somebody who has the potential to quarterback a power play in the NHL or produce even more than, let's say, 25 or 30 points a season, I'm so optimistic about Victor Soderstrom's floor and his ability to reach the NHL period that I'm willing to kind of 
forego those concerns or perhaps kind of give him the opportunity to prove us wrong as it concerns his offensive upside because I think that everything he does in the defensive zone, he does it well enough that he's going to be a net positive value player at the NHL level. And, and frankly, if you can find that type of player, a three or four defenseman, uh, somebody who can contribute on the first unit penalty kill, somebody the coach can trust in high leverage situations, you get that player in the low teens – I mean, people, we, we all get carried away at draft year, but the numbers are what they are, and that would be a great haul for whichever team was able to secure that with a mid-first-round pick. Yeah, for sure. And, and over to Scott, I know you recently wrote an article about prospects to avoid, and Soderstrom made that list. So what is it about Soderstrom that makes you less convinced on him as a top prospect? Yeah, so the, the, the crux of that article wasn't that I don't like Victor Soderstrom or that I don't believe that Victor Soderstrom is an excellent prospect because I absolutely do. He's kind of been in my early 20s to late 20s tier all year, um, has bounced around in, in that sort of same group of player. He's certainly among the best defensemen in this class up there with Vili Hainola and Philip Broberg and a number of others. Um, but again, and, and JD kind of touched on it, my, my biggest concern with him is one of offensive upside. I, I would absolutely agree that his floor is pretty high. Uh, just the fact that he handled himself the way that he did in the SHL this year speaks volumes. I was a little bit lower in hindsight on a player like Rasmus Sandin last year, who has very similar qualities in terms of the fact that he just never really had a value factor in terms of his offensive skill. And Sandine has proven to be a much better pick than I thought he was. I kind of had Sandine in the sort of 20s to 30s. I was the same way on someone like Travis Dermott, who had similar qualities and has emerged as a very good young NHL defenseman. So I could absolutely see uh, see me sort of being wrong on Soderstrom to have him as late in the first round as I do. Uh, ultimately, I, I made that decision just because I, I tend to sort of prefer to swing for the fences. And I think uh, you have to take risks at, at the draft to sort of garner those truly top level players. And I think that Soderstrom has a very good chance of being an excellent sort of or, or at least very good second pairing defenseman. Uh, I'm not sure that he's going to be a top penalty killer. I, I was a little worried watching him sometimes at the way that he managed his board battles and his strength along the wall and his effectiveness at winning those battles. Certainly he, he's like a feathery skater, so he can escape from them when he does win them. And he's extremely physical for his size off the rush in terms of his willingness to step up and lay a hit on someone through the neutral zone. Um, but yeah, it, it ultimately, I think it comes down for me to Soderstrom uh, being a guy who I just can't pro- quite project high enough to to have in sort of that 15, 16, 17 range with the, the Bobby Brinks and a couple other players that I have in that group that I really think have a chance, even if it is a sort of slimmer chance than someone like Soderstrom, of being a, a truly dominant player. Yeah, and, and I think you touched on this briefly, Scott, but one thing I want to kind of expand on is um, there's something interesting about players like Soderstrom, who played most of their games against uh, top competition against men, Yeah, is that uh, as great a feat as it is, it's rare to see them have these eye-popping stats like they would in a junior league. I mean, unless you're like Capo mm-hmm. Caco or someone really high like that. So uh, back to JD, how do you go about balancing those factors, in particular as it uh, applies to Soderstrom? Well, I, I think the one thing that we need to keep track of, and, and I don't, I'm not necessarily giving you guys a hard time for this, but I think generally we look at his low point totals and we forget to adjust for the fact that he's playing against men as a 17-year-old. And he was the only true 17-year-old that, that played a significant role in the SHL uh, for, for, sure. for a majority of this season. And so one of the things that I would do, and, and, and this is because I've got access to some great numbers courtesy of Jeremy Davis of Next Gen Hockey, is I would cross-examine his scoring totals using the seal-adjusted method. And I would see, okay, 
He didn't put up a lot of points, but how do they, they work contextually against his competition who are playing in lower levels? And the thing that you find is uh, he gets a slight bump up from 6, 0.16 points per game up to 0.38. And really, that's not that bad when you, when you compare it to the rest of his class. In fact, I, I think he actually has a better seal-adjusted scoring rate than somebody like a Philip Broberg. So I, I, I think that sometimes we're, we can kind of get guilty of, of not appropriately weighing that context and not appropriately uh, applying it in our analysis. And, and for me, I think that, you know, it's never going to be the selling point of his game. Like if I was in one of those draft meetings, I wouldn't be banging on the table saying that Victor Soderstrom is going to be that guy, a second power play type defenseman. But I would say that the, the, the potential exists for a lot more than perhaps we give credit, especially taking into consideration that when Soderstrom played against his peers in the Holinka Gretzky, there were some flashes there where you could see, like, okay, we got proof of concept here. We know that in the right situation, he's willing to, to drive, drive offense, right? And so uh, I think next year is going to be the real test for me as it concerns his offensive upside, and I'm going to be curious to see how he handles it in a bigger role with Brinas because... Uh, you know what, if, if this was a year where he just wanted to play conservatively and, and keep it, like I said, close to his chest, then we're going to see a big jump next year. I mean, that's that's going to be an interesting storyline for me to follow at the very least. Awesome. Anything else you want to add to that, Scott? No, I, I tend to agree. I think that next year, A, is going to be extremely telling for him. And, and could we know how much of a role confidence and age and age has to be a major factor in our evaluations of kids, especially kids like Soderstrom who are playing in the SHL and playing in one of the top pro leagues in the world at 17, 18 years old. So um, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how he handles it and, and where he can take it. I could imagine him spending a year or two more in Sweden and then coming over and, and really wowing a team in training camp and making a, a fairly quick jump to the NHL. So um, if he does that, he will definitely be, be considered more than the 28th best prospect in this class. Uh, I, I think there are certainly a number of players that I have higher than him on my board who he is likely to become an NHL, uh, uh, maybe not a better NHLer, but has a sort of more likely chance of becoming an NHLer at all. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it comes down to sort of the way that I ultimately decide to rank these kids. And I think that, um, upside and, and sort of swinging for the fences is it tends to be the way that I lean. And uh, I just, I'm not completely convinced that Soderstrom has that in the same way that a, a number of the players who I have a little bit higher on my board do. I, I just want to add one point to that. And, and, and I know this is supposed to be a debate, but uh, I'm actually going to offer a, a point of agreement here with, with Scott in that, look, the draft works as a mechanism to level the playing field insofar as it gives you elite cost-controlled talent. You're not going to win a Stanley Cup with an entire group of Marcus Granlins, even though they would be considered successful draft picks. You do have to swing for the fences to really get the most out of the NHL entry draft. So I do understand that and, and just wanted to make that perfectly clear as part of the conversation. Well, yeah, it's, it's totally fine to... Uh, the agreement is what we're here for. So uh, I think it's about time we move on to the third prospect on our list, which is uh, Patrick Puisola. He's a Finnish left winger who, after dominating juniors and struggling a bit in the pros, was moved to uh, the Mestis League, which is kind of Finland's second division pro league. So he, he continued to dominate there, also uh, scoring five goals in five games for Finland at the World Under-18. So... Um, just over to the rankings, Pusula has been one of the most disagreed players amongst all scouts, so not just you guys, but he was expected to go, uh, sorry, his expected range is, is very wide between 27th and 71st, and Scott, you have him ranked even higher at 22nd, so 
Um, and JD, you have him more so around the middle at 41st, but that's still a, a pretty significant difference. So starting with Scott this time, what, what makes you convinced of Pusula being a top prospect in this draft? Well, I think there are a few things that, that are worth mentioning off the top in terms of context. I think ultimately that NHL teams and many people who do draft analysis in the public sphere have done a, a, a not a very bad job, but a poor job of identifying and evaluating talent out of those second-tier pro leagues. I think that's true of the VHL. I think it's true of Al Svenskin. I think it's part of the reason that Elias Pettersson didn't go higher than he did on draft day. Uh, and I think it's true of Mestis and some of these kids who ha have successful seasons or fail to have successful seasons in Mestis. It is extremely hard. Um, it, it, I can't say this enough. It is extremely hard to evaluate those players in the proper context. I think it's part of the reason that someone like Philip Broberg has has been so widely ranked in, in sort of different spots in the draft. And I tend to be a little bit lower on Broberg in part because of the competition, but uh, even someone like Jonathan Dallin and, and just a number of players who've come out of Al Svenskin or Mestis over the last few years have sort of, the, there hasn't been a good grasp on, on where their talent level is. And uh, I just had to go back and, and wa keep watching Patrick and keep watching his viewings. And ultimately I just came away impressed basically every time I watched this kid play by his talent level. And uh, he's one of those players who can just in a split second, make something happen. And, uh, the big the big risk with him, and there is absolutely risk associated with him as a pick in the, in the early 20s, um, but the big risk with him is just that he is going to require a certain kind of line mate, I suspect, to be a, as dominant as he needs to be. He's someone who needs other players to get him the puck, and when he has the puck on his stick, he can break teams down with a deke. He can take the puck to the net. He has an excellent release off of his forehand, his backhand, his one-timer. Um, so there's just a lot of those sort of split-second moments in a game where he can pull you out of his seat with something he does and ultimately finish off plays and create scoring chances. And uh, we saw that late in the year at U18s, and we saw it all year with him in, in what is not a great pro league, but an okay pro league. And um, he just has so much individual talent that I found him increasingly hard to ignore after watching him a lot this year. And uh, ultimately that kept him in, in sort of the back half of my first round instead of the front half of the second round for me. Um, and, and I'm just really excited to see what he does with it. He's very much a boomer bust type of player. He's going to require a coach at the NHL level who puts him in, in sort of a scoring role rather than a depth role. And then he's going to require a centerman who can probably get him the pucks if, if he's going to be truly as good as I think he might be able to be. But uh, the talent level is just really exciting for me. He he wowed me in a few viewings this year. Yeah. So and over to JD, are you just less convinced of his offensive skill set or is it uh, more risk associated with him? Well, I, I definitely have a deep appreciation for for Patrick Pustola's uh, offensive upside. I think he sees the ice exceptionally well, and and I've found that he has excellent puck skills. I mean, his ability to uh, outmaneuver defensemen in tight is, is really something to behold, and it's part of the reason that I moved him a bit closer to the first round on my final board. Where I have concerns is, is, is like Scott identified, he's not exactly the type of player who's going to go in and, and dig the puck out for himself. He's going to need a play-driving center or a playmaking winger to kind of uh, uh, get the puck for him to create those opportunities for him to work his magic. And 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 to that exact end, he can do some pretty fa fantastic stuff uh, offensively. And I've seen him pull off some moves that just really uh, bring you out of your seat. But uh, I have concerns about his consistency, his effort level. Uh, defensively, he can kind of uh, take shifts off. Just things he wanders a bit. He, he has a, a propensity to wander. 
so I, I think with refinement, you could really find a, a legitimate top six NHL winger there. And, and, and I don't even want to rule out the, the possibility that there is more uh, to him, actually, because I think that he could become a, a high-end player. But uh, I do think that he's going to be a, a headache for a lot of coaches along the way. And, and for those reasons, there is a bit of risk associated with Pistola that I don't see with other forward prospects, which is why I wasn't able to put him into my first round. Yeah, so this is something I've touched a bit on on both uh, previous draft debaters episodes, but it's kind of the debate on offense, offensive upside versus uh, defensive wandering. So, uh, like my personal read on Puisla is that he'll be a, a, like a bit of a project pick in that way, as you guys kind of alluded to, but um, because of a bit of his skating, but also because of his defensive work. So, uh, just moving to a bit of a broader question here. So, how do you guys weight a player's offensive and defense when trying to make a rankings? Do you think? Uh, offensive traits are easier to find at the draft or is good defense a bit of a market efficiency? So, uh, Scott, do you want to start? Oh, it's a very good question. Uh, I think, first of all, you notice when you're watching the game, when when your eyes are on a game, you notice the good more than the bad, at least with forwards. It's probably the reverse with defensemen sometimes. Uh, so so that means that you tend to notice and you tend to come away high on players who who really pull you out of your seat and can wow you. And I think with someone like Vasily Podkolzin, that's actually worked uh, sort of far too much in his favor and uh, has has created a conversation around a player who you notice a lot on the ice, but who I believe isn't actually all that effective often when he's out there because he's just physical and he's on the puck and he's trying things and, and that can get you noticed, but it doesn't always mean it's the right play. So I, I think with Puistola, there might be a little bit of that too. And maybe I, I'm, I'm too high on him because of those, some of those moments that linger on me. Um, but you need to pay more attention. And I think evaluators need to pay more attention as a whole to the defensive side of a lot of these kids. And obviously skill is paramount in today's game. And and we want to reach on players who are offensively gifted. And ultimately those players can be taught some of the other things in the game, if they're truly going to be dynamic offensive threats, regardless. Um, But certainly you need to make a conscious effort as an evaluator, when you're watching these kids to pay attention to how they are off the puck, to pay attention as best you can to their effort level, even if effort can be something that's extremely hard to uh, to sort of put your finger on and put a pulse on without maybe talking to their coaches and that kind of a thing. Um, but it, it, it certainly takes more more. It, it requires more of your focus in in a viewing to really identify what makes a player good defensively than it does to identify what makes them good offensively. Yeah, and for you, JD, does it uh, does your evaluation process differ that much when it comes to uh, like offense versus defense? Uh, I, I don't think it necessarily differs. Where I, I think that I try to uh, marry that analysis is in a similar way to uh, how I approach the NHL, and it's a it's a question of do they pr- provide enough value? Uh, is the sum of their parts in the defensive and offensive zones enough to render a net positive? Right? Mm-hmm. I, they don't ask how; they ask how efficient, how many, and and I, I really kind of try to apply that level of analysis to my my prospect uh, work, certainly. So, I mean, here's the thing. Like, as Scott noted, it's a lot more difficult to notice defensive contributions. You have to really have a deep understanding of of the position, and, and that can certainly uh, throw people off. That's why defensemen are so much more difficult to evaluate. Uh, with with offense, it's, it's a lot more obvious, but you're also suspect to sometimes falling for the wrong things, right? So... Mm-hmm. You know, look at Jake Vertanen. He 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 was noticeable as all hell with the Calgary Hitmen, and then 
you, you, you take a step back and try to contextualize the way he was playing and go, is this going to be effective in, in higher levels of hockey? And as it turns out, the answer has been no. He's, he's basically a third line forward, and I think that's where he's going to settle in for the rest of his career, really. So uh, definitely there's there's a lot of, of, of thought that goes into that, and, and I still think we're working it out. So for me, I, I just try to, to take into account all of those factors and and weigh them as best as I can to come up with the, the overall picture. And the point on Vertanen is a point that's well made because I, I think as the game puts an increasing premium on goal scorers, we often can talk ourselves into to sort of the end product of goal scorers as being someone who's capable of doing everything that they do at, at lower levels and translating that. And, and we look for the goal scorer before we look for the playmaker. And I think that creates a lot of problems with players like Vertanen and Owen Tippett and Kiefer Bellows and a number of players we've seen over the years where that one dynamic quality, the ability to release the puck or even with a Michael McLeod a few years ago the ability to skate uh, can can really grab hold of you as an evaluator and it results in a lot of mistakes for people who don't do a good enough job of of finding everything else that's also required to become an NHL player and not recognizing that a player like Michael McLeod or a Kasperi Kapanen at that age put himself in the corner way too much because he didn't know what he was doing with the puck when he had it so um I think the Vertanen is an excellent example of one of those kids who you noticed a lot uh, and was a goal scorer at lower levels. And and that can kind of linger on you. And and guys like Kiefer Bellows kind of fall into that same category where uh, we have to be very cautious of of the things that we value and that there's more than just one or two main traits that, that are translatable to the next level. Yeah, awesome. So I think there's one more prospect that I want to talk about today, and that's uh, Connor McMichael. He played with Alex Formanton on the London Knights this past season, and it it seems like the Knights just can't stop producing these top forward prospects. He uh, slowed down a bit in the playoffs, however, with uh, five points in 11 games uh, after scoring well over a point per game in the regular season. But he's expected to go somewhere between the Sens' 19th and 32nd pick, but uh, I guess there's still a chance he gets left on the board by then. Um, given my expected range for him is between picks uh, 21 and 35. So as for your guys' rankings, uh, Scott, you have him in the second round at 46th, while JD, you have him further up at uh, 25th. So uh, starting with JD, uh, so what's your read on McMichael, and uh, why do you think he should be in the first round? Well, I, I ended up dropping him a little bit from my, my last ranking, and, and part of that was just consistency, effort level. Uh, I, again, it's hard to difficult, uh, sorry, it's hard to divine uh, those things from from far away, right? Especially over here in British Columbia. I mean, I, I don't know him personally, but there were moments where he seemed to check out of the hockey game, uh, where he, he would wander a little bit like we mentioned with Patrick Puistola. But ultimately, the thing that kept me coming back to Connor McMichael was his hockey sense is is high end. And, and you get the puck on his stick in the offensive zone. When he's feeling it, he can create offense out of seemingly nothing. And, and he's got great puck skills. I saw one goal the other day, still doing film work. Uh, I saw one goal the other day where he, he bat the puck up to himself at about waist height and then batted it in going full speed driving the net. I mean, he has that that ability, that dynamic goal scorer's touch to kind of uh, pull you out of your seat. And I think that there's value in that. I, I, I don't want to be clumsy and make the, the Robert Thomas uh, comparison because I, I don't think it's perfect. But uh, there, there are certain elements, and, and I, I, I definitely, uh, there are flashes where he reminds me of him. So I, I think when you have offensive potential like that, it's worth rewarding with a high pick, at least in my estimation. 
Yeah, and and for Scott, is your read on McMichael any different? Uh, not 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 in a sort of significant way. My my position at this point on McMichael is that I see a kid who does a lot of things at a good level, but not a lot of things at kind of an elite sort of high end level. Certainly, his touch around net around the net and his ability to score goals is at that level. He was. Uh, I believe I could be wrong about this, but I believe he was third in terms of his age group behind Cole Perfetti uh, and obviously Arthur Kaliev in the OHL this year in terms of goal scoring. Uh, so that certainly leaps out at you. He, he's come a long way in the last couple of years, uh, has really sort of taken his game to a new level, even if he didn't play particularly well in the playoffs. Uh, I just don't really know where I where I project him at the next level. I could see him as someone who's a third liner. I could potentially see him as someone who's a second liner. Um, he certainly could probably help on the, out on the power play on a second unit. But I just don't see someone who's going to really drive a line and really propel a team. Uh, and because of that, I ultimately settled a little bit lower on him. There were times this year where I had him in the sort of late 20s, early 30s, but I ultimately settled on him in the 40 range um, just because he never really grabbed me for being someone who has multiple tools that are high end. Um, so so we'll see. Uh, he's He's an interesting player. He's also a kid who despite the fact that he was 55% on draws this year, ended up playing the wing in that playoff run. So maybe he's a little bit more comfortable at center and he was pushed into a role that he didn't love. I don't know what the, what contributed to the playoff run and his play being a little bit lackluster, but I just see a kid who, who definitely doesn't have sort of that first line upside and probably doesn't have second line upside. So you're looking at a kid who's, who's maybe a tweener in between a second and third line player. Uh, and that obviously has value if, if that is his progression and if he can get there. Um, but, but just not quite enough to have him in my first round still. Yeah. So I guess talking about projections just a bit deeper. So uh, JD, do you, do you think he has that potential to maybe crack a top six on the NHL roster? Do you think he has the tools for that? Well, I, I think that I project him more as a middle six player than I do mm-hmm. top six player. I think that uh, I, I certainly think through the, the peak of his career, he's somebody who could slide into a second line center's role. And, and like Scott said, it was a bit bizarre to see him playing the wing as often as he did. Uh, I thought that his game was much better suited to playing down the middle of the ice. But uh, I think at the NHL level, that's where he's going to project. And, and certainly... He, he's going to be somebody who can contribute in both phases of special teams, just going to be a real Swiss army knife type of player. And I, and I think those have immense value, which is why I was able to rate him as highly as I did. Yeah. And, and for Scott, just one last thing I want to touch on for Michael is that the one tonight seemed to be quite the hot topic at the draft table. Do you think uh, just playing for the Knights has anything to do with uh, him maybe being higher on some teams draft boards? I don't know. I, I'm not sure whether I prescribe to that. I, I think certainly it doesn't hurt to be a London Knight these days. You get a lot of scouts in your building. People trust the development staff there. People trust the Hunter brothers. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't hurt him, but I'm not sure whether it gave him any sort of significant boost over other players in the OHL. I certainly think that there tends to be a little bit of a bias in terms of scouts who watch junior hockey at the WHL, QMJHL, and OHL level towards OHL players. Part of that's driven by the fact that the league is better, but part of it is often driven by the fact that there are certain teams that are routinely good and certain uh, teams that routinely produce players who maybe aren't as as talented as you would think because they're playing on teams that are talented. And I think often there's a huge gap in knowledge or at least a huge ignorance towards the evaluations of junior hockey players where I think a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking that all these teams are equal when they absolutely are not and and 
the bottom tier teams in the OHL and the top tier teams in the OHL exist basically in completely different worlds on a year to year basis. And that has a huge impact on production and all of those things. Um, I often come back to Maxim Kajkovic this season and the fact that he was well under a point per game, but consistently blew me away on an absolutely awful team. Um, so there, there are a lot of players who can get, maybe get lost on some of those lower teams and it doesn't hurt to be a London Knight, but I probably wouldn't say that it has a major impact on, on scouts perception of him. Anything you want to add to that, JD? Uh, no, I, I think that, uh, that just about covered it. Um, I, I don't think it should play a role at the very least in, in whether mm-hmm. you pick a player or not. I can, I can come out strongly saying that much, but otherwise I don't think there's a ton of meat. Uh, left on the bones there. <laughs> awesome. So before I let you go, uh, just one last question. Uh, every scout has a few late round guys that they really rep hard. So I want to give you both the chance just to shout out any late round picks that you think could be a big hit in the middle or near the end of the draft. So uh, JD, do you want to start with this one? Yeah, somebody who, who really jumped out at me this year was Tuka Tixola uh, mm. in Finnish Liga. Uh, just really high end offensive potential. The guy put up huge points in the Junior ASM Liga and didn't get a lot of time in, in the, the men's league, the Liga itself, but uh, I, I think it was one game, even if memory serves. But in that one game, which I, I had an opportunity to watch, he, he held up quite well. His puck skills are excellent. And his hockey sense is high end. Uh, I'm not too, too keen on his skating. I think he's got an okay straight line speed. Certainly room for improvement there, but I see somebody who has significant upside. Uh, certainly, and and really could surprise some people. Another player is is Nikita Okojek out of uh, the Ottawa 67s. And <clears throat> what was interesting for, for me about him was I could never marry his lackluster production with the tools that I was seeing on a game-to-game basis. He is a raw player, a very raw prospect. He can skate well. He has good hands. And with a little bit of refinement, I think you could really kind of uh, get a modern second or third pair defenseman out of him. So he stuck out as well. Uh, Gianni Fairbrother, can't say enough good things about him with the Everett Silver Tips. Uh, he was, I, I just couldn't understand why he wasn't uh, more highly thought of uh, at large because he had a great defensive impact in the game I tracked, and uh, the games I tracked, rather, and he also contributed a lot to that team's offense. So those are three players that really stick out to me as having upside beyond their consolidated draft rankings. Awesome. And for Scott, any other prospects you want to shout out? Well, I think TX Sol is a great example. We're absolutely on the same page there. Uh, on that note, in terms of Finns, Levi Altonen is a kid who really, really impressed me this season, was excellent in SM Liga, and then looked absolutely fearless, like just blew me away for a kid who's five foot nine by how confident he was to keep, go to the net in his brief stint with Kalpa at, at the legal level. Um, so Altonen's a kid who I just have a lot of time and respect for. I think when you're in this, this sort of sixth, seventh round, if there's a kid like him available who's been passed up because he's definitely on the smaller side, um, that I think it's absolutely a chance worth taking and, and someone who could prove to be a middle six forward at the next level. So Altonen's a kid who, who I really, really do respect. Um, Rhett Pitlick is another kid who... I didn't have a ton of opportunity to watch given that he was in the high school circuit in the United States. But once he made the transition to the USHL with Omaha, another sort of tall or tinier, sorry, thinner kid who just really blew me away with his skill level and his ability to make plays and his ability to find his teammates through seams. And um, certainly going to be more of a passer than he is a, a, a goal scorer if he ever makes it to the NHL. But Pitlick's a kid who 
Uh, I just absolutely do see the, the sort of talent level in and the, certainly the puck skills in. So I have a lot of time for him. Uh, and then if I were to have to pick a third, Jordan Spence comes to mind. He, he, I think his international play at the end of the season kind of put him on the, on the map a little bit more. But even before that, as a rookie in Moncton and someone who came out of a, a pretty, quite frankly, a pretty poor junior A league the season prior, but produced ridiculous numbers uh he wowed me in a few of my viewings with Moncton and again another kid who's on the smaller side there's a bit of a theme there but Spence is a kid who I could see two seasons from now being a truly truly dominant player in this EHL uh and, and someone who can absolutely take over games with his ability to play in transition and also defend in transition um so Spence is a kid who I think could be a, a second pairing guy and someone who ends up on a second power play unit at some point so Spence Altonen and, and Pitlick, they're, they're all kind of in that five foot nine, five foot ten range, but uh, I could see all three of them becoming NHL players. Awesome. Well, last thing, the listeners need to know where to find your work, so that's the time to shout out where to find you. Uh, Scott, anything you want to plug? Uh, if you're going to start somewhere, start with my top 100 ranking at The Athletic. Um, lots of lots more coverage coming from Vancouver, lots else to dig into at The Athletic, but basically everything's at The Athletic these days. Awesome. And same for you, JD. Any plugs? Yeah, yeah. Check out some of the work we're doing at EP Rinkside. I'm going to be releasing my top 93 uh, skaters for the NHL entry draft. I should be doing that not long after recording this. Uh, I'm also going to be revealing my top 10 goalies for the NHL entry draft on Saturday. Uh, A lot of content leading up to the draft, mock drafts, uh, player profiles, you name it. So really excited about the work that we're doing there and and really hope that people will give us a chance and and swing by and uh, check it out. Excellent. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for today. Uh, Thanks so much for your insight and keep up the awesome work. As I wrap it up, a reminder that you can find the cost per podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you really enjoy it, you can rate and review the podcast on those platforms as well. You can find me on Twitter at CutmoreColin and the podcast on Twitter at CPPointCast, where we'll notify you of future episodes. That's all for today, folks. Adios.